This podcast has been prepared for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for specific advice. You should consult your own advisors before taking any action. Welcome to the How David Beats Goliath podcast. Your host, Michael J. Swanson, is the author of the book, How David Beats Goliath, and CEO and chairman of the board of directors of Advocate Capital. And now, here's Michael. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Mike Swanson. I'm the CEO, Advocate Capital. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to um, our special guest today. Mr. Philip Miller is joining us also from Nashville, uh, about 15 miles north of me right now. Um, he is uh, with the Miller Law Office, pardon me, Law Offices. He is nationally recognized as a trial consultant attorney, board certified as a civil trial advocate, and he has written two books. I only wrote one. So, uh, Philip, are you there? Good. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, sure, sure do appreciate it. So, Philip and I are uh, broadcasting live um, from Nashville, Tennessee. Today is um, March 25th, 2020. We are um, working from home because of the COVID outbreak. So, uh, we want to keep everybody safe. Um, so, sorry we're not in the studio. Um, that's the way it goes sometimes. Great. So, uh, so Philip, you're, you're a, a trial expert. Um, you've written two books. I think the most recent book um, just came out, didn't it? Focus groups hitting the bullseye came out, I guess, two years ago now. Oh, is it two years ago? All time flies. I think I saw you at AAJ doing a signing, something like that. So, uh, so first of all, we're going to talk about um, a couple of topics that I know are on your list today. And um, one is how first instincts about what, what are important are often wrong. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's really a couple of things. One of the things is is that sometimes immediately and then over time we always fall in love with our clients uh, and, and when that happens we're not really seeing them and seeing the case with the same lens that someone who doesn't know anything about the case doesn't know anything about them has no investment at all might see that same set of facts and that same client so once we do kind of fall in love with our clients uh, yeah. and then that shapes the way we view them and view the case and the second thing our instincts about what's important is wrong because What's important, we think, is what's important to us or what we think should be important to anyone else. And there's a there's a big chasm between what we think should be important and what actually may be important to the people who are deciding the case. Interesting. Okay. I think I think next uh, you want to talk about prima facie. And I'm not a lawyer. I'm not even sure what that means. Well, I mean, you know, the... I think any good lawyer is going to look at the required legal elements of the case, the prima facie case. What are what is everything we have to do? So in a typical negligence case, it's we have to prove duty, breach of duty, causation, and then damages. And mm-hmm. so the focus on that's what we have to prove, that's what our proof is. And the problem is it's that's what our proof is. Mm-hmm. But when people make decisions, the kind of people that are in jury boxes all over the country. You know, they're not thinking about duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages when they make their decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, they're thinking about what's right or wrong, what's fair or unfair, and they may yeah. be thinking about things that have nothing to do with legal duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages. And so we prove all that stuff, and maybe there's still something out there that they wanted to hear about that they needed to hear we haven't given. So the prima facie fake case is never enough for that reason. They want to hear other things and about other things that we might think are irrelevant. Huh. And how can, how could a, a lawyer get to the bottom of some of those issues before a trial? Is there ways to try to, try to work on that? 
Yeah, there's several ways. I mean, sort of the number one way uh, is that in prop oversold a little bit is to use focus groups because focus okay. groups of people that are independent of you, independent of the case, don't know you, don't know the client, and mm -hmm. are going to give their unvarnished opinion about case issues. And their unvarnished opinion may be very different than what yours is. So that's one way to kind of get at what else, what other kinds of information are we going to need to talk about? Uh, for example, you may think a piece of evidence is really strong. It's part of your prima facie case. You think this is absolutely adequate. We've got it right. done. And then, you know, when you actually test it with people, they just don't get it. Or maybe they think this, the proof isn't strong enough. So what we think is enough is really almost never enough. Yeah, I've seen some really interesting presentations on um, focus groups and, and how you learn things you weren't even thinking about. Like someone asks a question about you didn't think it was even a, a part of the, the trial or, or the present or you know your presentation. Um, and so I've seen a lot of lawyers have great success focus grouping even several times um, prior to trial. Um, yeah, I mean the, the the earlier and the more often the better is, is sort of the general rule because you can get way into the weeds on a case, into things that the jurors aren't going to understand, maybe not, may, may not even care about. You can spend tens of thousands of dollars of experts that the jurors are going to kind of discard. Wow. Uh, before you do that, you probably need to find out what are the kinds of things that they want to know about and what are the things that they're having problems with that you think should be self-evident. Now, is uh, conducting focus, focus groups something um, you help lawyers with? Yeah, I, I do it all the time. Although Paul, Paul Scopter and I wrote that book on focus groups, and it's really a how-to book, so people can kind of do it themselves. But you know, the fact of the matter, just like anything else, there's some people that really can't do it. Um, it's just they can't they can't set themselves aside from their mm -hmm. feelings for the client, their feelings for the case, their own sort of wanting to advocate and fight for their case, and you yeah. can't do focus group. And yeah. so it's it's not for everybody, but it's a good source of information. But I'd say there's, there's a, there's a, a quasi-substitute for people that just can't, can't stop advocating uh, and can't sit there and listen to people just pummel their client and pummel their case. Then one yeah. of the things, sit down and really work through and build a model of what the other side is going to say in detail, mm -hmm. in writing, and then figure out if you have answers to those questions. Because if you don't have answers to those questions, your jurors aren't going to have them. And so uh, everything I tell people, if you look at the case through the lens of a defense juror and everything they might conclude or think about, you're on your way to building sort of a model of what the opposition could actually put on as proof in their case, or that the defense lawyer, the defense juror could talk about in deliberation. Right, fantastic. Well, I know you have five uh, factors that drive uh, juror decision-making. What are those? Well, in, uh, so I've done, I did, uh, well, I guess I only did four, four, I did four focus groups last week, but I, I, I did, I've done hundreds of focus groups and you hear the lot, a lot of the same things being repeated every time. And so when we think about the case that we're putting together, so we're in, we're in Music City, so I'll use a Music City metaphor or analogy at least. Uh, my my brother-in-law is a famous country music songwriter. Yeah. And he was, he was speaking to a bunch of trial lawyers about things and how do you, how do you come up with a hook or something that's gonna resonate with a lot of people. And, they, and one of the questions they asked him is, how do you figure what your playlist is when you go into a live performance? And he said, well, the number one thing is you have to know your audience. Mm. Because you can, pay, you can play a song that's a hit. 
and lots of people love it and you're in front of the wrong audience, it's gonna fall flat. And so we have to know our audience too. It's exactly the same kind of thing. And here's the thing our audience wants to know, are they wanna talk about? So number one, these are people that are brought in, they may not be happy to be there, they may be fine with being there. But the yeah. number one thing is they wanna feel like they're doing something that makes a difference. They don't want their time away from their home, their job to be trivial and yeah. unimportant. So the number one thing we need to have to do in our case is, what about this case is gonna allow them to feel that they're doing something important? If it's just about money, well, you know, you can still get a verdict in that case, but they're gonna really fight hard for you if it's just mm -hmm. about money. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is, you know, we are in a, you know, we're, you know, regardless of whether it's a red, blue, or red or blue state or conservative or progressive, it doesn't make any difference. We are, as a people are really very conservative uh, and in terms of the way we look at things. And one of the things that we hear from jurors all the time is they want to punish or affect change. If there's bad conduct, then they want to make a difference, which mm -hmm. means they want to punish the person or they want to affect, affect change in some way. And the way they punish people is by awarding damages and interference. Yeah. So that's number two. They want to know if they feel they want to. Well, they want people to feel they're doing something important. And number two, they want to be able to affect change and punish if that's what you're calling. Number three is they're always suspicious. You know, if we tell them that this is uncontroverted, uncontested proof, they're not necessarily going to believe us. Hmm. And so every piece of evidence we have, we have to have we have to have it backed up by something objective. It's not just what we say. Yeah. So. The, when we go into what our proof is, well, could they be suspicious of this element of proof? And the answer is, they're always going to be suspicious. How do we deal with that suspicion? And the time yeah. to do that is before you walk into the court. Um, number four is um, they always want to know the prior history of the conduct of the two parties. Because remember, they want to be able to send a message and punish. So if this is something that's happened again, why didn't they learn their lesson? Hmm. Prior history of the parties is always important, but then for plaintiffs, that also includes the prior medical history. Because if there's anything in the prior medical history, the jurors will use that and say, well, aren't they just piling on here? You know, right. We have to think about that and be prepared for that because they're going to be always looking at that prior history. Now, when there is uh, one of the terms of art that's used for the same concept is what's called OSI, other similar instance. And when we can establish that there have been other similar instances involving the same defendant, the jury's going to say, great, we need to send them a message. And right. when they have that kind of attitude, you're making the case bigger than one event, they have an opportunity to send a message, they feel like they're doing something important, and they're going to deliberate harder for us in the deliberation. Yeah, that reminds me of um, Hot Coffee, the movie. Um, every employee of Advocate gets a copy or views that, that movie. I, I remember how... Uh, the McDonald's executive was testifying there had been like over 700 prior incidents um, of, of the hot coffee burning people. So, you know, obviously McDonald's knew there was a problem. So that, that was very powerful to see that that came out. Yeah. And without it, it's just, well, it's just an accident. You know, when right. there are similar events, it's not an accident anymore. It's a failure to take some sort of corrective action. Yeah. So, and your number one, one point, if I may add as well, it, that, it's kind of like Simon Simix. A book uh, start with why um, people know what to do and how to do it but why am I here why am, why, why am I doing it it's so easy I think for plaintiff lawyers when they're managing their business with their employees to have such a strong why why are we doing this all day we're doing it to help people all day so 
uh, it makes total sense to me that you need to get the jury thinking that way as well. So. And then, of course, I think the last thing is, now, by the way, I'm giving you five things. And there's lots of things that jurors want to know about and we'll talk about. Yeah. Consistently across group, across any kind of case, these five things seem to come up over and over and again, which means okay. if we hold them into our case preparation, we're going to be better prepared. We're going to know what the set list needs to be for this particular audience. Mm -hmm. The last thing is, is because they know they're going to have to go in and deliberate and decide the case. They want to know if there's any rules, you know. So how do we? Because because there's you know, there's conflicting facts always. But mm -hmm. are there rules? And if there are any rules, there's some people who just absolutely enforce those rules regardless. I mean, if there's a rule, it's violated. We're enforcing the rule. Other people are maybe a little more measured. There may be some back and forth. But mm -hmm. they always want to know are there any rules? And the question, the thing we have to remember is, there's rules for both sides. There's not just rules for one side of the case. And so we have to think about any rules, including maybe rules that our own clients violate. So what kind of rules are you talking about? Um, if you are on a bus going down the interstate at 70 miles an hour, you shouldn't get up and walk down the aisle, right? for example. You know, okay. If you're approaching a yellow light, you should slow down and use caution. Or if it's raining and you're going 50 miles an hour, you should slow down to avoid hydroplane. Right. That's okay. Kind of, I, I was thinking maybe it was like rules of evidence or something, because I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> no, no. Well, you're, yeah, the answer is the rules have to be designed for people who aren't lawyers. They have to be commonsensical. For example, yeah. anybody would know if you're in a bus and it's going 70 miles down the interstate, you probably shouldn't be walking up and down the aisle because it's going to be unsteady. You know, and if you're approaching a yellow light, you should approach with caution. And if it's raining, you should probably slow down to avoid hydroplane. So those things kind of examples of the kind of rules that are most effective. Now we have experts in our cases, you know, and sometimes people spend thousands and thousands of dollars on experts, and sometimes experts can be a source of rules. But if it's the expert's rule and it doesn't resonate with those jurors, it's not going to have the same impact. So if you have a really good expert who's teaching the jury and the jury's nodding their head and they understand this rule and they get it and they agree with it, thumbs up, good. But if it runs counter to common sense, sure. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Well, thanks. Well, well, folks, this is just one little snippet um, of Philip's um, knowledge. You get a little taste for his uh, level of authority uh, and why he's such a very effective and popular uh, trial consultant. So please tell us more about how you suggest getting the jury to follow plaintiff's rules versus the defendant's rules. Oh, well, uh, the answer is it's helpful if you know what your rules are and the defendant's rules are before you step into the courtroom. And then one of the things you can do is you can kind of test it. I mean, okay, what do people say? So, I mean, the easiest focus group in the world is when you're just asking the test rules. Now, do they equally, if you give them some context, you know, do they, which rules do they more strongly agree with? You know, how is the rule framed? And so maybe if you think, you know, they're more likely to, um, attached to the defendant's rule, then the question is, how do we reframe our rule so it's more successful? But I don't think there's any way to do that other than in advance, build a model of the opposition case, think about what the rules are going to be compared to yours, and then say, I mean, I have my opinion about them, you have your opinion about them, but what do ordinary people could be on a jury to think about when they're given those, those rules? Do they conflict? Yeah. Can you reframe yours? I'm not sure I'm answering the question. It's just, it's a tough question. And, and the only way to do it is 
work. Yeah, I actually don't know. Do you have any, uh, any suggestions for remote focus groups at this time? Yeah, I did um, two last week. Um, wow. And so the way that works is, is that you have to uh, prepare a narrative, right? Uh, a neutral narrative, which incorporates, you know, the facts, the kind of facts that either side is going to want to have if mm -hmm. someone's going to be thinking about or talking about their case. So you have to prepare a narrative, and, and then you have to prepare a list of questions over the over the, what you think are the key issues for both sides. And typically, those questions are scaled, what's called a, a Likert scale or a Likert scale, seven points: strongly agree, strongly disagree. Uh, and then you have some open-ended questions as well. And then you basically, the way the online groups is, is they will log online, they will read the narrative, it'll include video, it'll include pictures, it'll include your narrative, and then it includes all of these questions uh, with all the follow-ups and fill in the blanks. And that's that's what you get as a response. What you don't get is you don't get that back and forth discussion between two people who are agreeing or disagreeing at a point, but you get lots of information on what you've identified as the key issues in your case for people to comment on. So I, I think I think they they work fine. They are not they're not a replacement for a live focus group, but they're pretty good if you're trying to find out and get good information about your case. Do you set up with web webcams or something? Yeah, actually, it's done. You know, when we think about online focus groups, they're not typically done with you and like a like a webinar where there's all these faces and heads talking. It could be done that way, but generally they're done online where someone logs on to it, they hit a link, they get the entire narrative of the case, the pictures, the videos, the questions, and then they get paid for the participation. And they're uh, and so they never see the other or have contact with the other people who will comment. The uh, of course the one of the things you can do just like any other focus group is you can pre-select who do you want to have responding to your questions. I just don't want 12 random people. I mean I want people who I think are going to have robust we're going to create sort of a robust conversation about the issues in the case and so if it's a medical case for example you'd always recruit people of a medical background and oh. if it's a case you'd always recruit people that have a cdl you want to you want to hear from people who might be defense oriented because that's the way you're going to have to ultimately counter the defendant's case and they may give you some good cues as to so what the defense is it almost is. like a phone dire kind of you, you want to select the right jury it's not yes in fact because if you do enough of them uh, you start seeing you can potentially see a pattern a certain kind of people just don't seem to be very good for us um so i'll give you an, i'll give you an example and i don't i think we should be careful to generalize this but if you have a case where you want the jury to really to punish conduct okay um there are some people that don't believe in punishment and and so for example I did a group, and it was probably a, two months ago. And there, uh, there were I ran into this twice within a period of just a couple of weeks. One of the one of the persons happened to be a, a nurse. Uh, I think the other one was a social worker. They just didn't believe in punishment. Mm. So there's no way they were going to deliberate. This is the case. This was a case where primarily, primarily, the real issue was punitive damages, whether the conduct was reckless and willful and wanton and all that legal stuff. But if you have someone who doesn't believe in punishing, well, you can't have them. In your box. I mean, you know, right. about punitives, they're just they're gonna hang out the jury, or they're gonna hold down the amount of the verdict. That's a good so point. You, I hadn't, hadn't thought get, about how Vordire is important, but I never thought of it kind of applying also to your focus group. It's a good point. Yeah. Well, you can learn about. I mean, for example, if 
you, you don't want to learn that out of the actual trial. You want to learn it out of some focus groups. You start getting a feel for the kind of people that may or may not be bad for you. And sometimes, you know, you just don't, I'll give you, here's another, this is one of my favorite all times, and I better get to another question. Um, the, uh, I did some cases that, um, I've done a bunch of cases involving birth injuries, which always have, you know, just sort of horrible consequences. Yeah. Sometimes the child doesn't live. And so you still have a case, but the child didn't live. And the case then is for the wrongful death of this infant uh, or this baby during, uh, during delivery. And uh, if you have somebody on the jury who has experience, for example, someone who breeds dogs, they breed, they breed six or eight litters a year. And every year with every litter or maybe every other litter, they just have a puppy that doesn't thrive. And they have to pick up that dead puppy and get rid of it. Now, they've done everything they can for the mother they can, nutrition, food, everything. Yeah. What is the conclusion as to why the puppy died? It just happens. It's nobody's fault. Right. So when that happens with a baby in a medical malpractice case, and you've got somebody who's a dog breeder, it may not be easy for them to come back and return a verdict saying that anybody's at fault because their own experience is, it's just, it's just nature, it just happens. That the, the baby just doesn't thrive. And so you learn in, as a result of doing focus. Now, I've done a gazillion focus groups, so I've learned a bunch of weird stuff like that that nobody else would ever wanna know. But the you know, more focus groups you do, the more little tidbits you pick up that help you when you're actually going into the trial. Because right. you know that doesn't mean you would exclude every nurse or every dog breeder. But I think I'd have a conversation with them, right? How do you find the online focus group jurors? Oh, well, there are, uh, there are um, people that do nothing that, but run online groups. So find somebody who does online groups, tell them what you're interested in, get an idea what the budget would be, and use them. You don't want to try to do this yourself. I mean, I suppose you could, but most of us uh, are better served spending time on the file, not on the, mecha the mechanics of getting people to participate in an online exercise. So okay. I would go and find somebody who does online groups, talk with them, see what the budget is, and then spend your time working on the narrative that they're gonna be provided, which is balanced, right? And then the questions that you're asking to respond to, which are gonna really tell you something about the case that you didn't know and help you in terms of developing your strategy. Hmm. Great, do you have time for another question? Sure. Um, in the small to medium-sized personal injury case, how do you overcome jury prejudice that may have a predisposition against plaintiffs because of the current political climate? Is it even more difficult to try cases for plaintiffs in the current coronavirus climate? Hmm. Well, I mean, the corona question, I think, maybe it's... The corona question first, because that's the easiest. First okay. of all, nobody wants to be in a room with perfect strangers for hours at a time, period, end of story. Yep. So when is that going to go away? Uh, I don't think it's going to go away when the you know someone blows a whistle and says, okay, you don't have to shelter at home anymore. Oh, so yeah. that, that could be with us for a while. Um, if someone's called to jury duty, for example, if people call to jury duty in September, are we going to have the same response in September 2020 that we did in September 2019? I guess we'll see, but I think there's a possibility that people will be reticent even respond to a jury call. Yeah. No, they don't want to be. They don't. The whole idea of being boxed up with a bunch of people may really bother. See, but other people just don't care. I mean, yeah. they're congregating in groups. They're doing things that I wouldn't do, and you might do. 
But so the coronavirus has that, I think it's going to have an effect. We just don't know for sure what it is. In and how term, long will it last? In terms of the responding to, you know, a small firm, small case, um, the answer is, you know, you know, the number one things is, you know, if you if they like your client, if you've got a good client and some legitimate case and they like your client, you're gonna do fine. You know, the problem is is that we probably because we fall in love with our client and we fall in love with the facts of the case, we forget to look like look at the case like others would. But if they're gonna if they really like this person, then yeah. you're probably gonna do okay. But if we like them and everybody else is going, eh, or maybe if we don't like them, I mean, I have talked to Dozens of lawyers they had these cases and they were complex and they're putting a lot of time and money into them. And at the end of the day, they didn't even like their client. And the reason they didn't like their client is there were things wrong with their clients. There'd <laughs> be a variety of things. But, you know, if they didn't like him, is the jury going to fall in love with him? And go, probably not. Probably not. So and the number one thing is you got to have a client that the jury's going to like because that's half the fight. Yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of unfortunate. If you're likable, you're a better plaintiff. <laughs> Not sure that's fair, but that's that's the way it goes. Philip also shared with us his contact information, so thank you for sharing that, Philip. And um, sure. and so uh, the we are my my staff is sheltering at home. I'm at the office, but if you just call up, uh, the the regular number is area code six one five three five six two thousand six one five. Say that again. Say, say that again. 615-356-2000. They call that number, I'll get the message, I'll call you back. Or you can email me uh, at um, pmiller at seriousinjury.com. Okay, fantastic. And uh, and Philip, thank you so much for, for taking time away from your uh, busy consulting and law practice today. We sure appreciate it. Thanks, Michael, it was a pleasure. All right, thank you, everybody. Have a good day. For listening to this episode of the How David Beats Goliath podcast. If you have any questions or recommendations, send Mike an email at mike at howdavidbeatsgoliath.com.